You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have yet another extra special guest, Linda Gibson, CEO of PGM Quantitative Solutions. She has a really fascinating background, um, very eclectic, a combination of math and law. Uh, she has run a number of firms and a number of divisions at large firms. Uh, and traced a career arc that's just very unusual compared to the typical person in finance, eventually leading her to a point where she's managing quants running about $100 billion in assets. Um, Really a fascinating background, and it just goes to show you how broad and flexible the world of finance is that there are so many different ways you can find yourself in a senior management uh, position in, in this industry. Uh, if if you had to guess someone would run through this path, you would, you would never um, assume, well, you're going to come out of law school and eventually you're going to be general counsel. Uh, how does that lead to running a group of quants? But that was Linda's career path. There are a few people in the world who are more knowledgeable about the management of asset managers and what it's like to actually run a global um, organization and interact with lots of aspects of the business of finance, whether that's acquisitions or compliance or dealing with all the legalities of multi-jurisdictional regulations. She she really uh, has been the person who's lived this and, and walked the walk, and I found this conversation to be quite fascinating, and I think you will also. With no further ado, my conversation with Linda Gibson, CEO of PGM Quantitative Solutions. So let's get into your background, which is really kind of interesting. You, you get a, a BS in mathematics and a JD from Boston University, math and law. Yep. Not the usual combination. Not not at all, Barry. Uh, it is something, math has always come easy to me since a child. So I was a math major pretty much because it was an easy A for me. Math um, is truth. It's, it, it's absolutely. It is. I loved the fact that uh, my grades weren't uh, subject to the subjectivity of my professors and uh-huh. uh, that there was always a right and wrong answer. And the one well, that... That's until you get to applied mathematics, where it all goes off the rails. Which, if you notice, that is where I stopped. <laughs> I didn't get an advanced degree in math. But you do get the the JD, and and you said you weren't a math nerd. You you were not looking for a job in finance. What happened? I was not. I was waitressing uh, one summer, my final summer after my senior year, and. Uh, a friend called and said, I just interviewed with a financial services company. I'm not interested in the job, but you might want to reach out. And I literally reached out. It was Mass Financial Services. I reached out. I got the interview and I got the job and I started the next week. Uh, didn't really think about going into financial services. I thought it was going to be, honestly, a math teacher. I was thinking about teaching in, in boarding school. So wait, so you go to MFS, is MFS. that right? And was this between college and law school or after you graduated law school? It was between college and law school. Okay. So first job out of college. And you discover, hey, this finance stuff is kind of interesting. What then led you to go to law school instead of business school? 
I worked with a bunch of lawyers. So I worked at uh, the third party uh, administrator distribution arm of um, mutual fund family at Mass Financial. So it's called the Banking Services Group. It was back when banks couldn't offer and distribute right. mutual funds. So we had clients like Chase and Citibank and JP Morgan and all of those. And so I worked with a bunch of lawyers and our company was going through transition at the time. And I thought, I always wanted, I knew I wanted to get an advanced degree. My father uh, is still a practicing lawyer at 85, and my grandfather was a lawyer. So you come from a long family of, of attorneys. I do, but my father advised me not to go into law. He always wanted to be a stockbroker, uh, even really? though he's in trusts and estates. Yes. So he uh, was never really interested in pushing me to go into the law. And even though he worked for his father's law practice with the name on the door, literally, right. uh, that was not an option for me. Uh, that That's so amusing because I immediately imagined getting pushback from the family. Hey, everybody here is a lawyer. We uh, Our name is on the door. You're, you're turning your back on the family business. No such Nope. Thing. They were at a point where they anti-nepotism or nepotism was an issue, and they said, nope, you will not be coming to work for this firm, so don't even think about it. Huh. So I was literally sitting on the roof deck one night and I was balancing law business school, which one made more sense for me and didn't really know that much about either. But I was very logical by nature and I was working with a bunch of lawyers at the time. And I also loved the fact that, well, it took one more year to get through school, three right. years versus two. But when you come out, you are something. You're a lawyer. You mm -hmm. have something. And so off I went to law school. I, I thought you were going to say indebted, but... It, it really, that too. It, it really doesn't matter when you when you come out of business school, you're an MBA. When you come out of law school, assuming you pass the bar, you're a JD and you're licensed to practice. Um, how soon after law school did you realize I don't want to practice law? <laughs> Pretty soon, I went in- Second year, third year law school? <laughs> uh, it was pretty much the third year law school. I was in an immersive uh, mock trial program where you spend the whole year and you work for the DA's office and the prosecutor's office. Right. I thought I wanted to be a trial lawyer. lawyer. LA Law was what it was Everybody all about. Did. Exactly, exactly. It was so cool, and so I thought, that's what I want to do. I, I got into it. I wanted every single one of my cases to settle. I did not like <laughs> law, especially trial work, at all, and I was walking on the street, and I ran into somebody I had worked with at uh, this banking services group of MFS, which had spun off and become Signature Financial Group, and the oh, woman sure. said to me, you might wanna come back and work for us, have you thought about it? And I said, absolutely, I'm in, what do I need to do? And I started working for them part-time during my third year of law school, and then worked for them 10 years after. Huh, that, that's interesting. When, when did the Harvard Advanced Management Program come along? That came along much later. So I spent the first decade of my career as a mutual fund attorney, which was really- In-house for, not for a law firm, but for a, uh, a mutual fund related company. Right, this was the Signature Financial Group, mm -hmm. and that was a great opportunity to learn, frankly, because not only was I writing, offering documents, I was reading, I mean, how many people do you know that have read the 40 Act and read the various usage directives, which is the basically the UK equivalent to the 40 Act. I so, know a lot of people keep it on the nightstand in case they get a little, know, little in case tired. 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 No, or if they, they have can't a hard sleep. time getting to sleep, yeah. puts them right out. Right, uh, so that was just a really good foundation for me. I, I also sat, as I said, we were the third party distributor for all of these co major companies. So I was on 12 different boards, not on them, but I was the officer. So I was taking minutes. So I was learning just a ton about the mutual fund industry and working with these big global companies. Uh, but then this company, I'm getting off topic of the advanced management degree, but this company launched uh, a new investment fund structure called Global Hub and Spoke or Master Feeder. You might uh -huh. have heard of it. Yep. Uh, and I was chosen by the CEO to go travel globally with him to not only get big firms, the likes of HSBC, Julius Baer, those types to adopt this fund structure, but also to get regulatory approval. So mm -hmm. I was traveling all around the globe. This is I was in my 20s and that pregnant. That has to be a lot of fun on the company dime. It was very, very fun. We front were, of the bus. Front nice of the hotels, bus. Yep. Well, we actually had a flat in London. Even so better. I was going to uh, Luxembourg, Germany, Switzerland, the UK. 
today trying to get regulatory approval of this mutual fund mm-hmm. structure. So it was really, really um, a great foundation for me. And I, I did that for uh, about um, 10 years. And this is where I, I moved over to um, UAM at the time, which is the first multi-boutique um, investment uh, business. And I moved over there into their third-party mutual fund business as general counsel. So that that's the real interesting question is, why general counsel in-house when, given your background, you could have gone to any of the big firms, Skadden, elsewhere, it and, is. and made a ton of money working as an attorney working for these uh, big fund companies. It's ironic that you, you said that, you said Skadden, because- uh, Not ironic at all. When I was thinking about uh, going to Old Mutual, I was offered a job at Skadden that same day mm-hmm. for the same amount of money, and I knew UAM was potentially going to be acquired, and I knew it was a riskier business, but I thought, I can go work for a law firm, and then eventually become a general counsel, or I can just skip the law firm step, especially working at a firm like Skadden and go directly to the general counsel job, which I thought was much more interesting to me. So even though Skadden had such a big name, I decided to go to UAM. And it's it- a really challenging life-work balance. At my, my friends who all went to big firms, like you hear stories and, and they, all they do is whine, why don't you quit? I can't leave, I'm making so much money. Right. But you're miserable. I'm just gonna do this for another five years. I, I've heard every 10, 20 years, it keeps going. So you skip that, went in-house, never looked back. Never looked back, and the firm got acquired pretty much a year later. I was told to shut down my division or my business unit, which I did, and more interestingly, uh, given my USITS background and the fact that I had traveled globally, this was a uh, South African-based firm, so Old Mutual, but it was listed in London, so the head office was in London. They were very interested in my global experience and my regulatory experience. So they said, hey, you want to become general counsel of the holding company? Why wouldn't you? Uh, So I then put all of my 40 Act work aside, and that's when I really learned the art of negotiation. They had 44 affiliates at the time. We had to convert them from revenue share to profit sharing. We had to put equity in the hands of the founders and their management teams. Mm-hmm. We were doing M&A work, we were disposing of firms that weren't strategic, we were acquiring firms. So I ended up negotiating with so many CEOs, CIOs, and founders. That was really eye-opening. When people have self-interest and it infects their wallets, <laughs> they are very interesting people, so I had to pivot <laughs> and adjust. That's a very polite phrase, uh, interesting people. Yeah. Were you New York-based, London-based, or nylon back and forth? I was uh, Boston-based. We were Uh Boston-based, but we had our parent company was in London, and then the ultimate insurance company was in South Africa. So I was in London quarterly, and then we had affiliates. We had 44 affiliates, and they were all over the U.S., but they were also in the U.K. and uh, Tokyo at the time. Oh, so you were really on a plane a lot. Global. I, yeah. I think I think the flight from uh, Vancouver to Tokyo is faster than the flight from New York to South Africa. That's a that's a bear of a flight, isn't it? It is, but South Africa is really amazing, and it was interesting going uh, into Cape Town and looking around. The brand Old Mutual was like Coca Cola here. Oh, it really? was on every building, everywhere. Huh. It was really interesting. They had offices in Cape Town and Joburg. I preferred Cape Town, of course, but so. The obvious question, given this background in, in law and working uh, on mutual funds and eventually becoming general counsel, how does this prep you for the role you have today, essentially herding cats and managing a whole bunch of quants? Again, the learning, the negotiation skills really helped a lot in in dealing with managing investment professionals as well as managing quants. Um, As you know, quants have extremely high IQs. I mean, our firm, PGM Quant, we have 29 PhDs. CIO is literally an ex-rocket scientist who used to <laughs> right. work at NASA. Right. And then we have an advisor to the chancellor of the exchequer in the UK as a CIO. So these are very, very smart people. Managing them, you, you definitely have to adapt your style a bit. So you have to learn how to deal with smart people as well as introverts. Uh, we have a lot of introverts at our firm. They sometimes have trouble talking to clients. Sometimes they have trouble talking to me. So mm-hmm. I need to adjust my management style. But what I learned really early in my career is that it's not about IQ. It's about 
well, it is about IQ. We need very smart people, but EQ is equally important. So what I have to do for them is I have to lead them, direct them, manage them, and then sort of push them, but then just leave them alone. I want to make sure Mm -hmm. I've got give them the resources that they need, uh, but also give them the direction that they need. And, And having this legal background, what was really great about it is when you're a lawyer, you're an every important meeting. So you're in all the board meetings, minuting everything. You're in the board meetings, you're in the compensation meetings, you're in the internal audit meetings. So you really learn everything about a business, everything that goes right and everything that goes wrong. So that really helped me understand what it was like or what it would be like to manage a company. And then I had this strange seven-year stint of heading global distribution, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, that was very interesting. I didn't want that job at all. The CEO of our firm came to me and said, I don't really need a chief operating officer, but what I do need is a global head of distribution. Uh, Can you build a centralized global sales team? And oh, by the way, your compensation is going to be tied to assets raised, which is the first time that had ever happened in my life. Right. Interesting perspective change, eating what you kill. Yes. I had never sold anything either. So Mm -hmm. again, what I had to do there was be comfortable with hiring really smart people. So I analyzed the landscape, figured out where there was demand for our products, made sure we had the right products to sell, made sure that the regulatory and the expense hurdles weren't too high to go in. And then I had to build a lean team of very smart salespeople that could sell our products in these various jurisdictions. But also when you think you're managing people so far away from you, the distance is so vast that you have to trust them. We had people in Dubai. I need to make sure those people are doing what they say they're doing and that I can trust them. And never mind. also we had people in China, Hong Kong, Tokyo, sometimes we had language barriers. So Mm -hmm. again, I had to make sure that I hired the best people that I could really trust to do what they needed to do. And then again, let them go. I also needed to learn fast that when somebody is not right or not a good cultural fit, that you need to make a change very, very quickly. Yeah, no, to say the very least. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So let's talk a little bit about your work with PGM. They are one of the world's top 20 asset managers, well over a trillion dollars. What was it like settling into such a giant firm coming from more reasonable size firms uh, in, in the early part of your career? Well, I came from a more reasonably sized firm. It was a very, very easy transition for me because I spent 17 years at a an insurance-owned multi-boutique at the head mm-hmm. office in various executive positions. So it was a surprisingly easy transition for me. It, because of the insurance background or because of just... The multi-boutique background. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't on the insurance side. So I was at the asset management arm of the old mutual insurance 
enterprise. Uh, and I worked at the head office. I was, after I was general counsel, I was chief operating officer and head of affiliate management. So I oversaw 19 different investment boutiques that frankly spanned the gamut of offerings. We had timber, we had real estate, we had global fixed income, quant equity, fundamental equity, managed futures, everything. You name it, we had it. And, and Old Mutual is uh, the main South hubs. Africa, London, New York, Boston. Boston, okay. Uh, so you, you're you used to working across timelines and regions. Absolutely. And having worked in that environment for so long made moving over to PGM and PGM Quant Solutions a pretty easy transition for me. I was really excited about it. I had been watching PGM. I had been watching their reputation and their brand grow exponentially under David Hunt's leadership. And then I had also known a lot about PGM Quant at the time was called QMA. And we had at a firm at Old Mutual, uh, two firms, Acadian and Analytic, who are both quant firms. And I sat on both of their boards for years. And as head of affiliate management, you're responsible for their P&Ls. So you are in their shorts with respect to their strategy, their product development, any lift outs they would do, making sure they had appropriate distribution resources and funding, made sure their succession plans were set and were executed seamlessly. So I spent a lot of time with uh, quantitative firms, and I really, really liked it. Coming from a math science background, I very much liked the systematic nature of a quant firm, but I also liked at Peachum Quant, we like to call it the fusion of art and science. So you have the fundamental insights plus the systematic. And Mm -hmm. while I am a math science person, I am very, very artsy and creative. I love a good craft. My daughter got married two weeks ago, and I I spent my winter learning how to decoupage oyster shells with maps of the Cape and gold gilding along the edges. So I I spent, I don't know how many weekends doing 200 of these over the winter last year. So that is is a little snapshot into my life. Uh, But to take it back, so I very much like sort of the art and science of quant investing. Uh, So it was a natural fit for me to come to PGM, but also to come to PGM Quant. And it's been, it was remarkably easy to transition to the firm. And more interesting to me, when I became COO, I expected, frankly, organ rejection because I didn't come from the investment management side of the business. And often you think that investment professionals want CEOs who are investment professionals. And I was shocked and delighted, frankly, when I was appointed uh, chief operating officer of PGM Quant, that the investment group embraced it. They loved the fact that I would support them and lean into them and really let them do what they do and not micromanage them. So CIO and CEO are very, very different skill sets. CIO, you're essentially dealing with um, a, a probabilistic process, trying to make assessments about an unknown outcome in the future. CEOs have to manage people, they have to manage budgets. It's much more blocking and tackling and um, less probabilistic than the investment side. So the fact that you're now CEO of this group of quants, but don't have a background as a CIO, that, I don't think that at all would work to your disadvantage. Yeah, and I saw it in real life when uh, you know, being part of a multi-boutique and being on the boards of 19 investment managers, I saw the difference between the CEOs that had been investment professionals or CIOs and the ones that were heads of distribution or were in operations. It, it is interesting, though. The majority are either in distribution or CIOs. They right. don't tend to be lawyers, So, uh, but... Regardless, I, I do think that CIOs tend, if I'm going to stereotype, they tend to do better managing money. Than people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that's so. absolutely, I, I don't think that that's over um, generalizing at all. What's, what's kind of interesting is I thought the ease going from old mutual to PGM, given both of their insurance backgrounds, might have been that, but you're suggesting it was less had to do with that and more had to do with just running a broad assortment of different groups, departments, divisions, strategies, et cetera. Yeah, both PGM and All Mutual are similar with respect to their investment management 
uh, businesses tend to be pretty separate and distinct from their insurance businesses. Mm-hmm. So they report in and they have um, you know quarterly business reviews and all of that stuff, and they they dovetail nicely, but they they really are run separately. So you were general counsel and and had to manage a large group of attorneys, and now you're managing a large group of quants. Any similarities or differences that that are noteworthy between herding each herd of cats over there? There are similarities in that they both tend to be meticulous. So they're they're both type A. They're both very, very smart, and uh, they tend to get into the weeds and the details, so you have to constantly take them up. So at our firm, putting portfolio managers in front of prospects and clients, Uh we constantly have to train them, give them presentation training. We need to often bring in CPMs to help translate their knowledge into layman's terms. CPM being? Being client portfolio managers. Uh So these are the people that explain what we do in layman's terms to prospects. Client-facing. Yes, right. and uh, many of our, as I said before, many of our uh, investment professionals are in- introverts. They mm-hmm. do not want to be in front of clients or prospects. Uh, lawyers can be the same, and you often have to get lawyers to think like business people. You do the same thing with investment professionals. They don't have to think like business professional as much as lawyers do, but they still need to adjust their thinking a little bit, and I often need to change my leadership style, and I learned early on, uh, I took a personality profiling test. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called Insights Discovery. And they put you into a color bracket. And I'm red, which means <laughs> I, I tend to like people to be be bright, be brief, and be gone. That's how I like people to interact with me. But there are a lot of people that want a lot of data. They want a lot of information. You need to spend time with them. You need to ask them how their kids are. Some are extroverts. They don't care about the topic. They just want to have fun. You know, Others uh, care more about socializing. There's a lot of different ways people like to take in information. So when you're managing lawyers and you're managing quants, there is something similar there. Managing distribution people is a whole different ball of wax, though. That 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 was fascinating when I managed distribution group. Salespeople respond to financial incentives. They do. They're all. They also can be very needy. <laughs> they oh, can, really? And they can require a lot of your time. And they also want to be praised quite a bit. Huh. Uh, which is interesting. Although everybody, I think everyone likes praise. I guess, but if you're on a variable comp system, depending on how successfully you raise assets, it's there in black and white on the sales log. You've raised uh, X, hey, do I really need to tell you this is fantastic? You did a great job this quarter. You do actually. What I did learn is you do, and the more you do it, the better they perform. Now, I think again, that works everywhere. What do they say? You have to say something positive X number of times. The sandwich. You, yeah. If you're gonna say something negative, you gotta put something positive on either either side either of it. Either side of the it. The criticism right. sandwich. I, okay. I find that amusing. So let's drill down a little bit to the various quant strategies that PGM utilizes. Is it different asset classes, different geographies, different strategies? What is the full spectrum of offerings PGM has uh, for their quant group? Uh, short answer is all of the above. So PGM Quant is divided into three platforms. We have our quant equity platform, which manages risk control equity portfolios that are were quants, so they're model and factor driven. Uh, they cover core value opportunistic equity and indexing. Then we have a multi-asset platform. The multi-asset platform manages things like offerings that give you inflation, hedging against inflation. So we use publicly traded real assets and commodities. We do defensive equity strategies. Uh, we also do asset allocation and overlays. Mm-hmm. And then we have a third platform, which PGM Quant acquired right before I jo- joined, which was another interest of mine, was um, integrating a new firm into the fold. And this is PGM Woodwani. It's our London-based liquid alternatives firm. It uh, offers global macro trend following. It also has inflation hedging products as well as macro tail risk products. So we kind of cover and we go up and down the market spectrum from micro cap all the way up to large cap and then we go across geographies so we'll do you know US international EMX China you name it we we offer most of it in quant form the one thing we don't offer is privates huh really? our our sister company does that what's the name of the sister company uh, we have well 
Pigeon Private Capital. We have Pigeon Real Estate. Uh, we actually have six sisters. We have Pigeon Fixed Income, Jenison, Pigeon Portfolio Advisory, and uh, Pigeon Investments. Those all wrapped together make up that one point. $2 trillion that huh. is PGM. Re- really interesting. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So let's talk a little bit about multi-asset opportunities, Uh, starting with, you have a year like last year, 2022. Stocks are down, bonds are down, all these asset classes are under pressure. How does that affect all the various strategies that you guys are running? Well, clearly the markets affect our strategies, but that's one of the reasons that we feel strongly that that quants excel in volatile times. mostly because they have a long-term approach, they're data-driven, they're disciplined, they're diversified. So we have 300 plus stocks in our portfolios. We look at hundreds of pieces of data on 10,000 companies every day. Uh, So we're very, very diversified. But the other thing about being a quant, which is nice, is it it removes the, the emotional bias from picking stocks. So you don't get caught up in what's going on in the market. And, and, freaking out in essence and and making bad decisions. You have your models to ground you. Sure, there's fundamental insights on top and there are people here back to that fusion of art and science, Mm -hmm. but we have the models as our bedrock. So given what 2022 is like and obviously very challenging, what's it like when the calendar flips? Really it was last October, 2022, where markets bottomed and, and took off. How does that change in in market regime affect how you're going about your business or is it you know still the same thing just whether markets going up and down you're still applying the same strategies. We're applying the same strategies, but having said that, and, and again, uh, we offer so many different strategies, but what we do have, and it, people have been very, very interested in them, are sort of that um, infl- the inflation hedging strategies that we offer, the custom mandates. We're all about sort of solving uh, our clients' needs, not only today, but tomorrow. So how do we work with those clients to figure out what they're trying to solve for? Some are want downside protection. So we've been uh, recently uh, putting together portfolios that have downside protection. They might limit the upside a little bit. We can Mm -hmm. adjust that depending on our clients' preferences and needs and wants. The macro tail risk products, the inflation hedging products, all of these different things that are helping clients right now move away from the 60-40 portfolio is just not working for clients right now. And sure, they, they want to put money into privates. Privates are big right now, and PGM is leaning into our privates and our alts, meaning PGM at our head office. But at the same time, people need liquid investments. And so what we provide for them is liquid solutions to help them navigate through these turbulent times. 
Huh. Re- really interesting. So, so the bulk of of what you're doing is um, liquid. You don't need uh, a gate to get out. These are all stocks, bonds, other assets that are readily tradable any given day. Yep, all liquid, including um, publicly traded real assets and commodities. Clearly, liquidity is a little tougher with sort of the micro cap and the small. Sure. So what we do, what our models do there is they assess the trading costs of getting in and out of uh, companies, because we want to make sure, of course, that you don't pay more in trading costs to get out than your alpha. So we have right. to pay attention to that. We also have people that use us for overlay strategies, and they often have to get out on a dime, so we need to make sure that everything is very, very liquid. Hmm. That that's really interesting. Uh, how bespoke are the portfolios and the solutions that you come up with for clients? Are they really customized for individual um, institutions, or how do you think about that approach? They're extremely customizable across um, all of our platforms. So even, uh, I'll give you an example, our quant equity platform. We have an ESG solutions offering. We had a very, very large ENF endowment and foundation come mm-hmm. to us and say, we need to get we need to solve for our ESG um, needs. And we want to do that. We want to track a certain index, but we want to take energy out of the portfolio. So what we've been able to do is we've been able to help investors solve for their ESG needs wherever they are in their journey. And I, and I get that it's different for different people, sure. but that's what's really unique about our offerings is that we're able to sit there and talk to you and say, Barry, what's important to you? Do you care about water usage? Do you care about women on boards? Do you care about energy? Do you care about a carbon footprint? Uh, how much do you uh, want it to impact your returns, or maybe you don't want it to impact your returns at all. So how do we work with you to create a portfolio that does what you you know what you wish? Uh, so that's been really interesting, and we've gotten a lot of traction there. Huh, really super intriguing. So you mentioned some people are looking for inflation hedging. Um, I would imagine that would have been really useful last year. Are you still getting demand for that, given how far uh, CPI has fallen from the peak, when was that, June 2022, something like that? Uh, is there still a demand for inflation hedging? There still is. It may not be as in demand as it's been, but if you think about where we are, the macro environment is so uncertain. People still don't know whether we're going to have a recession. People don't know. People are assuming there's going to be a recession in uh, Europe. So people just don't know. So I think they're really trying to pardon the use of the word hedge, but hedge their bets and make sure that they have downside protection. And people get a bit scared in in this type of environment and they want to diversify their portfolios. So we just, what we want to do is we want to partner with our clients and they might have any number of needs. They might have you know, risk parameters. They might have liquidity needs. They might want to track a benchmark. Uh, they might want to just absolute return. They might want real return. Whatever they need, we will solve for. So about half of your clients, ballpark, are large institutions. You mentioned endowments and, and foundations. Um, and given the background of PGM with insurance, I think about future liabilities. Is there a lot of matching, hey, in 2035, we have this sort of expected demand on, on our capital. How important is is future liability matching to custom solutions? It's not, we don't do as much of that at, at PGM Quant. So we do manage money for the Prudential General Account, but it tends to be in equities and we do manage some money for them through our PGM Woodwani. But as you know, insurance companies have various constraints and right. they need to solve for these things and they have much smaller buckets of risk assets. So should insurance companies invest in equities, uh, we very much want to be a part of that and we do manage um, equities on behalf of our parent company. But lucky for us is is we don't we don't have to think about paying claims. Uh, we just have to think about managing the money in the best way that we can. What about since people are talking about hedging? How do you think about risk management? Um, are you looking at a series of small wins, or is there sometimes a, hey we're going to take a big bet because we have a lot of conviction here? So. 
risk management is very much embedded in our process. So it's not an afterthought. It is something that we pay attention to. And clearly you have to take risk if you're going to get gains. So, but what, what our models try to do is take the, the, risk, the risks that are going to benefit us and then manage the risks that are not. Uh, we tend to take a lot of singles and be consistent, mm-hmm. but it depends on what our clients are looking for. So I say that with respect to our equity book, but then we have also we take much you know larger bets with uh, our PJ Woodwani platform, as well as if you're thinking about maybe a small cap investment versus a large cap investment. So it really goes up and down the gamut, uh, depending on what our clients are looking for, what their risk tolerances are, we try to solve for their risk needs. And again, quants can do that pretty effectively because of their process. So so how big a differentiator is PGM Quantitative Solutions uh, to PGM, again, given the insurance background, I don't know of a lot of other large insurers whose financial arms are leaning this heavily into the quant side. I think it's a it's a big differentiator for PGM. One, I just. PGM has one of, as you mentioned, one of the broadest asset management offerings out there, and I feel like Quant is a very important component to the offering, especially how, if you think about how technology is advancing and it's becoming more and more a part of our lives, AI is evolving, uh, and we've been doing that for a long, long time. So I think it's just natural to have a Quant manager as part of your stable of offerings. Uh, But yes, I do believe that it's a differentiator for PGM. Really, really intriguing. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So, so there's a couple of quotes of yours that I have to ask about because they're kind of fascinating. Quote, softer skills are more valuable than ever. They are what clients want. So, so first I have to ask, what do you mean by softer skills? Tell us about that. I often refer to softer skills when I'm talking about women in management, actually. When you think about uh, the ability to connect with people, to really listen, to understand what their wants and needs are, that many people don't do that. And I feel like, I feel as though softer skills, especially in this tech-enabled environment, so in a hybrid environment, when you're streaming and dealing with people by Zoom and Teams and you're not seeing people in the hallway, these softer skills really, really differentiate you. Uh, And one of the things that I've been doing uh, as CEO during what I did during COVID and I've continued to do now is you lack that ability to run into people in the kitchen and to to connect with them and really build a relationship because I do believe that building relationships is important to building trust. Building trust is essential to building working relationships with your business partners. And so what I started doing was I started doing a video series. If you think 
carpool karaoke. I would drive my <laughs> my dog to the dog park in the mornings, uh, and it was about a forty minute drive. And I would do a lot of reflecting and thinking about strategy, people whatever I was doing at work. And instead of thinking about it, I thought, I'm going to do some little video segments, two minutes, didn't really think about what I was going to say, just got on the video and talked to the employees of our company. And I did that regularly so they would know what I'm up to, what I'm thinking about. They knew a little about me personally, but they also knew what I was thinking about, what the management team was thinking about, and what we were up to. And that's an example of a softer skill that... It's that ability to connect with people and to think about how you can connect with people in different ways to build their trust and get to know you better. You, you mentioned um, the various h- hybrid work options, that especially what took place during uh, the pandemic. Are you guys still operating on a hybrid basis? And, and what does that do for you? We are. We're working in a hybrid three days in the office, uh, two days work from home. and. I believe that it's the best of both worlds because we have those three days to collaborate, to continue to get to know each other, to brainstorm. And then we have uh, two days that we can do heads down work, uh, Mm -hmm. meaning the, the work from home days. And I also feel that we get a lot of credit for doing that with our employees. Our employment, our employees are happier in this environment. It's what they want. Uh, it's what they're getting used to. And I was just listening to actually Bloomberg this morning where they were talking about how the trains are getting busier and mm-hmm. workplaces are going are, are changing their hybrid schedules. So I'll be interested to see what happens in the next year or so uh, with respect to hybrid. But I think right now it's a pretty good balance. Does it does it help with employee retention and and even new hires? It does. We've actually had certain people that uh, wanted full work from home, which we don't do. Uh, So it it is something that I believe companies need to do. They need to pay attention to that. I think our offices are in Newark, New Jersey, so hybrid is pretty appealing. And uh, I do think it's a differentiator, or maybe it's not even a differentiator. It might just be Table stakes. Right. Amongst the big banks, a lot of them have been gone back to J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. A lot of these have gone back to five days in the office. And there's been some pushback, not so much from the young 20-somethings who really need to be immersed, but the the slightly older generation, late 20s, early 30s, who, who really know how to work remote. Right. I believe it's important for the younger generation because you want that mentoring. You want to be able to, again, run into people in the halls, get to know them, get to understand what they do. And and I do think that's important. Uh, I think flexibility is also important to many. Many have either young kids at home or they have ailing parents or they have hobbies uh, or they just have wellness goals. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, getting that balance right can be tricky, but this is again why I think the three days is is a good balance. It's it's a nice way to solve for our employees' needs, but also get the work done and build a culture. Building a culture, we haven't talked much about that, mm-hmm. but it, it one of the first things that I did when I took over as CEO was work with the employees to reset our values, and then not only reset them, but then drive them home and live by them and make changes based on them. And I think that building that culture it's very very difficult to do if you're in a fully work from home environment mm-hmm. you know that makes that makes a lot of sense um last last quote of yours uh, you've talked a lot about leadership and diversity especially when it comes to uh, women in finance tell us a little bit about your thoughts about um the best strategies for leading uh in an industry that's spent so many decades as a male-dominated bastion. Again, it's lean into those softer skills. I think it's a trifecta of opportunity right now for women. So you have uh, companies and boards that are trying to increase their diversity stats. So they're more open to women in senior leadership positions. The hybrid work environment makes it easier for women that are balancing multiple, multiple uh, different chores and responsibilities. And then you have the benefit of women having these softer 
larger skills that work in this new tech-enabled environment. So I think it's a, a great opportunity for women going forward. I think the issue really is the pipeline. And one of the things that I'm passionate about and we're doing a lot with at PGM Quant is we're going out and doing community work. We're reaching out into the newer community and we're working with kids as young as elementary school kids wow. so we're we're getting them interested in asset management we're doing things like uh, shark tank and uh, job fairs and things like that that are kind of mock job fairs uh, and it's just been really rewarding for us because we have to start at such a young age so these these women and other uh, diverse populations will continue to have an interest in asset management you're, you're playing a long game you're planting seeds 10 15 years in advance because none of this is going to pay off for a long time. We need to be patient. As as we invest for the long term, we need right. to be patient, so, but not complacent. Not complacent. So so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Starting with, hey, what kept you entertained during the lockdown? What are you What are you streaming these days? Gosh, uh, meaning uh, streaming on television? Sure, television, podcast, doesn't matter. What, yeah. Whatever whatever audio video is entertaining you. So I like documentaries. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I was looking or watching this weekend was Fantastic Fungi, which I highly recommend. This is all about the medicinal and healing properties of mushrooms. Uh, if one has ailing parents or is having health issues, I, I highly encourage you to tune in. But it is also a beautifully, beautifully filmed documentary. Mm. I also live on the Cape, so I had to, you know, the shark population is booming, so I had to watch After the Bite, which is all about the, the shark population on Cape Cod. Uh, but other than that, as far as sort of more mainstream, I, I did like Ted Lasso very much. It What's was not to love? entertaining. Right? You always right. got a good tidbit of knowledge, like be an authentic leader, you know, lean into your insecurities. Uh, I never turned that off without uh, picking up some little tidbit of information. Uh, as far as podcasts, I get most of my news by email feed, so I tend to do that more as a hobby. So I do, I'm very interested right now in longevity um, mm -hmm. and health, so I listen to something called the uh, Cabral concept by Dr. Stephen Cabral, which uh, talks about all sorts of things. Uh, one of the things I was looking into uh, was an infrared sauna and a cold plunge. So my husband and I just recently purchased both of those things. We, I have a buddy who is crazy into the cold plunge and whatever that breathing technique is yep. that you need to do. And I committed to doing a cold plunge next summer. So um, we'll see how that goes. I, I'm in the ocean every day. Uh, Memorial Day weekend. Wow, that's my cold plunge because that's like you know sixty degrees. But what these guys are talking about is high thirties, low forties, really, really cold. Yeah, ours is forty nine degrees, wow. and, and it's cold. It takes about a minute and thirty seconds to to numb up. So, so that's an interesting podcast for me. Um, I do uh, tune into this other podcast. Uh, it's called Your CEO Mentor. It's by the author of No Bull leadership. Uh -huh. And uh, this individual's name is Martin Moore. And I totally skipped your conversation, your question about the AMP program, which is an advanced management program. It's right. an a, elite um, uh, executive education program. But he was a buddy of mine at the AMP and he wrote a book on leadership. He was the CEO of a company and he wrote a book called No Book leadership. And I, of course, read it out of courtesy uh, because I don't normally get a lot, frankly, out of leadership books. It's very mm -hmm. intuitive to me. But I got quite a few nug nuggets of information from this book. And he's just very entertaining. And uh, so I tune into his podcasts uh, frequently. And I get little tidbits like it's about um, respect, not popularity. It's about um, uh, excellence, not per perfection, different things like mm -hmm. that. It's just interesting. And he's Australian, so he's really interesting to listen to. So, um, so you mentioned mentors. That's my next question. Uh, who are your mentors who helped guide your career? I have one mentor. Uh, she was the lawyer that hired me for that job out of 
college. Her name is Molly Muggler, and she worked with me my entire career, her entire career. She's now retired. So she hired me. I then became general counsel. I moved to Old Mutual. I brought her with me. And what was amazing about her is she believed in me before I did. She had such confidence and vision for me and my future. And she kept referring to herself as my sticky asset that she'd stay with me. Uh, but wasn't what was inspiring about her is she's so intelligent and she's such an accomplished lawyer. But at the same time, she was militant about balancing her personal life and her professional life. She prioritized watercolor painting and tennis uh, equally with her uh, job as a general counsel of a big firm. So uh, to this day, I am still connected with her and I'm still constantly inspired by her. That's interesting. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites? What are you reading right now? My nightstand is a bit eclectic right now, Mm -hmm. so I have, again, another book on longevity called Outliving, uh, which has, again, to do with health and longevity. I have The Rain Barrel Effect, which is, again, about uh, what you put into your body and how it uh, affects, again, your health and longevity. But the, the real shocker on there is, I believe it's called The Modern Textbook of Astrology. During... uh, COVID, I started uh, thinking a lot about astrological charts, and Uh I found them fascinating. And they are tied a lot to math and science, and they're very, very technical. And I had my chart read, and I said, you know, I'd be interested in learning how to read read charts. That doesn't seem that hard. He said, oh, trust me, it's hard. He gave me the name of three books. He said, start reading and then get back to me. I might have to postpone that to retirement because it is quite technical. It's very math forward, but it's uh, it's still interesting. Uh, for fun, uh, recently I've read The Lincoln Highway. I really liked, uh, I loved, uh, I think it's called Beneath a Scarlet Sky. What I like to do, back when I was a lawyer, everybody would say, oh, have you re- read the most recent you know fiction book on law? you know, Tom Clancy kind of stuff. And I just don't want to read things that I'm living. So I don't want to read books on investing. I don't want to read books on the law. I want to read books that transport me to another place in time Mm -hmm. where I can just learn about. Memoirs of a Geisha was, you know, interesting. Things like that. Just get out of my own head and think about something different. We do enough, as a lawyer, think about how much you have to read. when you when I read, I want to read for fun or for gaining knowledge of something different. Huh, really interesting. Down to our final two questions. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad interested in a career in either investment, finance, management, or law? As we've been going through this podcast, I, I've realized the benefit that my legal profession has had on my management abilities. I I never quite tied those two things together so much. The broad knowledge that you get from being Mm -hmm. a business lawyer is quite extreme. Uh, So depending on what that person's interests are, I would say network, network, network. It's all about talking to people and understanding what they do and understanding what's out there and really building relationships. That's really what it's about. That's what it's about in business. That's what it's about in dealing with clients, building relationships. It's it's just what it is about life. But it, it but it's very hard to make that decision again. I fell into my career and I'm pretty fortunate that I've had a lot of opportunities come my way. But I'm not somebody who says, you need a goal and you need to follow it. Because I think if you have blinders on for that one goal, that you're going to miss all of these other opportunities that can lead you in a direction that might be much more fruitful for you. Interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today? You wish you knew 25 years or so ago when you were first getting started. Gosh, that one's more tricky for me. I feel like I was pretty informed back then, but if I can flip it on its head a little bit, maybe I'll answer it as to what advice would I give to those 20-somethings out there now. Mm -hmm. And I would say understand the benefits of compounding. Make sure you invest early. Make sure you're diverse. And uh, make sure you invest in your 401k plan because as much as it feels as though you can't afford that extra $100 or $10 or $1,000, it's just so important to, to start investing early. Yeah, no, to say the very least, that that decade 
20s to 30s makes a huge difference over 40 years. It does, for sure. Linda, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Linda Gibson, CEO of PGM Quantitative Solutions. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 500 or so we've done over the past nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts at podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Sarah Livesey is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Anna Luke is my producer. Sean Russo is my researcher. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.